In March of 2013, Molly Frankamont disappeared from Sunnyvale, California. Once her family, who lived back on the East Coast, learned that she had been missing, Molly's sister, Abby, went to California to figure out what happened to her. Through her investigation, Abby discovered that a few months before Molly went missing, she started renting a room from a man named Glenn Griggs. Abby also learned that Glenn was a violent person and Molly had been scared for her safety before she went missing. As the police investigation progressed, they suspected Molly was murdered and Glenn was responsible. However, when they tried to arrest him, he brandished a gun and he was shot and killed by police. To this day, no one has ever been held responsible for Molly's disappearance and her body has never been located. Hey everyone, welcome back to Detective Perspective. My name is Derek Lavasser. I'm a licensed private investigator and former police detective. Each week I'll be covering an unsolved case in story format. I'll then give you my perspective on the investigation and provide contact information for the individuals or organizations connected to the case so that if you have any leads, you can contact them directly and maybe you will help solve a case. Uh, speaking of solving cases, if you're someone who's interested in true crime, specifically unsolved cases, and you would like to hear my opinion on those investigations, please consider subscribing whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. This is another sad case, and this is going to be our second case where we have family involvement. Um, as you will see as this investigation unfolds, it's pretty obvious what happened here. The issue is, is that the family really feels, and spoiler alert, I agree, uh, that the police didn't do enough when they had the opportunity to do it. Uh, and so this case right now, for the most part, if you've heard of it, you've probably heard of the offender's name and not necessarily Molly's name. And the family has a big problem with that. And so do I, which is why I've agreed to cover it. I think that although there may not be much we can do as a community to help solve this case, I do think that we can contribute to making sure that everyone knows who Molly was in life and not just the fact that she was a victim. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive into the case. Molly Ann Frankamont was born on April 26, 1975, in New England. She was close to her parents, Ed and Chris, who were archaeologists and anthropologists. Molly also shared a close bond with her sister, Abby, who was three years older. Abby always admired Molly for her intelligence, humor, affectionate nature, and sensitivity. In December of 1976, when Molly was just 18 months old, the family moved to Peru so that Ed and Chris could continue their research. Eventually, the family began splitting their time between Peru and New England, and they later moved to other countries, including Japan. Molly's exposure to all these different cultures allowed her to become fluent in three languages. After Molly completed middle school in Japan, the family moved back to the States and settled in Ithaca, New York. There, she continued her education and graduated from high school. A few years later, while still living in Ithaca, Molly had a daughter. Now, Molly's family asked me not to use her daughter's real name, so in this story, we'll refer to her as Kiara. 
Molly loved Kiara dearly and they had a close relationship. Each year, they attended a family reunion at Lake Bonaparte in upstate New York. During these gatherings, Molly enjoyed spending time with her sister Abby and their cousin Christine. Meanwhile, Kiara formed a close relationship with Christine's daughter, Sam, who was similar in age. We have the privilege of speaking with Sam for this episode, and some of her favorite memories of Molly are from the reunions at the lake. It was always a great time and everyone enjoyed being able to get away and connect with family. Here's Sam now talking about Molly's personality. She was very compassionate, very giving, but she also was a little bit more impressionable. My mom said the two of them were like best friends growing up. As Molly got older, she kind of went more off to herself. She could struggle a bit with her confidence, but she was always a very giving and compassionate person. It was really hard to see and hard to hear from my family about that because it's it's a double-edged sword of like, she's this very nice, kind person, but she doesn't necessarily have that same self-worth. It's not necessarily reflected within herself. She's just very impressionable. My mom kept using the word impressionable. So I'm going to use that word too, <laughs> sticking by my mom. Sam explained that as Molly got older, she had a lot going on and she struggled more and more with her mental well-being. During the late 1990s, Molly decided it was time for a new environment for herself and Kiara. They packed up and moved to Sunnyvale, California, located in the San Francisco Bay Area. Molly started working two jobs, one at a mystery house and another at a flower shop. Her mom, Chris, would also send her money to help her out. But as time passed, Molly started secluding herself from her family members that lived in the Bay Area. This included Sam and her mom. A lot of the family, from my understanding, did try to help, you know, invite her to things, kind of pull her out of it. But she would, she almost would act like things were completely fine. But you could tell that something was different. I think maybe she might have been depressed or something like that, or maybe she didn't feel, she didn't feel good enough, perhaps. In the late 2000s, Kiara moved back to the East Coast to live with Chris while Molly stayed in Sunnyvale. Even though they were far apart, Molly's always made sure to call and check in at least once a week. In mid-January 2013, 38-year-old Molly moved out of the Sunnyvale apartment she had been living in for years. She then began renting a room from 52-year-old Glenn Griggs, whose home was one block away at 498 North Fair Oaks Avenue. Molly continued speaking to Kiara and Chris at least once a week. However, she kept them in the dark about the move, and she never brought up Glenn. At this time, nobody, especially Molly, was aware that Glenn had a violent criminal record in multiple states dating all the way back to the 80s. According to a report from the district attorney, in 1980, Glenn and a friend were charged with the first-degree murder of a six-year-old boy in Florida. Glenn's friend had confessed to strangling the boy inside a mobile home trailer, while Glenn insisted that he only helped dig a hole under the trailer where the boy's body was found. Glenn ended up accepting a deal where he agreed to testify against his friend, and in turn, he was convicted of accessory after the fact and was placed on probation for five years. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking here, and I don't disagree with you, but for me to talk about it for an hour, as far as the justice system is concerned... There's really not much I can say or do. All we can do is decide who we're voting in to political positions and and maybe force some of these legislators to take a more active role in changing the sentencing restrictions or requirements when it comes to 
someone who confesses like this in order to get a deal. Do I think if this is all true, what he's saying, right, he should do life in prison for it? I guess it would depend on the specifics of the case. But let's just say that he walked into the room and the guy was like, hey, you're going to help me. I still think he should have did time. The f just the mere fact that he didn't tell police after the fact, probation is not enough. That's just my opinion. Later, Glenn moved to California, where he continued to break the law. He racked up a lot of charges, including driving under the influence, battery of a police officer, and resisting arrest. In addition to his lengthy criminal history, Glenn had three girlfriends who died unexpectedly between 2003 and 2006. In an arrest affidavit, one detective stated that Glenn, quote, has a repeated pattern of being present or associated with the death of white females who have problems with alcohol. Unfortunately, only one of the deaths was looked into as potentially suspicious. In 2003, Glenn called 911 to report that his 38-year-old girlfriend, Eveline Jordan, died while staying at his home in Tuolumne County, California. Although her passing was ultimately determined to be of natural causes, there were some concerns. One being that Eveline had a very high level of alcohol in her system, measured at 0.31, which is almost four times the legal limit. Another concern was that Glenn had a history of abusing Eveline. Approximately one year before her death, Glenn was arrested for a felony count of infliction of corporal injury after he physically assaulted Eveline. Officers took photos of nine bruises on her body as evidence. However, charges were later dismissed for unknown reasons. Now, I don't know why these charges were dismissed, but I will tell you, in my experience, a lot of the times, it's due to the lack of victim cooperation. Yes, we as officers and as the justice system can pursue charges without victim cooperation, but it makes the, the case very difficult. So if investigators are trying to speak with her or attorneys are trying to speak with her to maybe get follow-up information or to serve her to have her come in to court and testify against the offender, and she's just completely unresponsive and refusing to do so, because these justice systems, because the court systems are so oversaturated already, there are many cases where the charges will just be dismissed and they'll move on to a case where the where the victim actually wants help. The only reason I think that could be the case here is, as we know, they stayed together after the fact. So something happened there where, for whatever reason, Eveline forgave Glenn and they ended up staying together a little bit longer. And it's potentially possible that that, that decision resulted in her death. Two years later, in 2005, Glenn called 911 to report that his 48-year-old girlfriend, Beverly Donaldson, died in their Sunnyvale home. Glenn told police that he had been out on a walk, and when he returned home, he found Beverly dead in their bed. Beverly's death was determined to be from accidental acute ethanol intoxication, and no criminal investigation was ordered. One year later, on September 5th, 2006, Glenn's 50-year-old girlfriend, Kelly Daniel, was found dead in a Sunnyvale garbage dump. Her time of death was undetermined, however, her toxicology test showed that she had a blood alcohol content level of 0.246. Kelly's death was ruled a, quote, unattended death since it could not be determined how or when she received the injuries that caused her death. Police considered Kelly's death to be suspicious and a homicide investigation was opened. When detectives spoke with Glenn about Kelly's death, he said the last time he saw Kelly was at his home on September 1st four days before her body was found. Further details about the investigation into Kelly's death are unclear. All we know is that Glenn was never charged with anything.
Now, this looks like a classic case here where detectives know something's going on here. But as I've said before, and I'll unfortunately say it again, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. But I'm sure detectives looked at the totality of the circumstances, seeing that he had multiple girlfriends who died in a similar fashion, uh, all older in age, all coincidentally die this way, that there was something more to this than just Glenn having a chain of bad luck. But as it says right here, they can't determine when these injuries occurred. And therefore, how do you paint a picture or how do you tie it together where you're able to charge Glenn with the murder by illustrating that he's physically responsible for it? In theory, it would be great, but realistically, it's just not possible. And that brings us up to speed on where things were with Glenn Griggs when Molly moved in with him in mid-January 2013. Obviously, she didn't know about his past or she never would have moved in with him in the first place. Although Molly didn't discuss Glenn with her family, she did talk to her friends about him. Right after settling into Glenn's home, Molly told them that she wasn't okay with her new living situation. And according to the report from the district attorney's office, she mentioned several times to her friends that Glenn seemed odd and she wasn't comfortable sleeping in the same house as him. Instead, she tried finding different places to sleep at night. Now, this is just a terrible thing to think that, you know, you're down on your luck, maybe having some mental struggles, not able to get ahead financially. And imagine being in a position where, although you're trying to do the right thing for you and hopefully to eventually get back to your daughter that's on the East Coast, uh, you can't even get enough sleep at night because you're concerned about the person in the other room. It's, it's really hard for certain people and for a lot of people who are going through something, those struggles to get back on course. And I think that's why we always have to check on our loved ones, even when it appears that they don't want our help. Because in some cases, they're, they're just too prideful to ask. But you really don't know what's going on until you look into it yourself. And I'm sure if I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Molly's entire family, they probably wish they went out there sooner. And I know we have Sam sprinkled in throughout this episode. And, and just by the amount of love that they have for Molly, I know that's the case. After a while, Molly described Glenn's behavior as, quote, erratic, and she said she was scared to go back to the house. Molly explained that Glenn would often be drunk and talk to himself about hurting and killing other people, something he claimed to enjoy. Molly said that when Glenn talked to her about harming women, he had a, quote, wild look in his eyes. At one point, Molly mentioned that she had been asleep with one eye open because she was living with someone who had previously killed a woman and disposed of her body at a Sunnyvale garbage dump. Things only continued to escalate with Glenn's behavior, and by the time early March arrived, Molly was telling friends that she was terrified of him. She said he, quote, scared the shit out of her, and she thought he was going to rape and kill her. Molly told one friend that, quote, she didn't want them to forget her if anything happened. Although Molly was in fear for her life, she still managed to call her mom Chris on March 9th to wish her a happy birthday. Molly didn't share any concerns about her living situation, and Chris thought everything was okay with her. But after that call, no one heard from Molly again. By March 13th, Molly's phone was no longer working, and she hadn't cashed a check from Chris. One week later, Molly's friend John went over to Glenn's house to visit Molly, but she wasn't there. When John asked where she was, Glenn threatened to break his legs and refused to give him any details on her whereabouts. Following this encounter, John was worried about Molly, so he called the police and asked them to check on her. According to the district attorney's report, 
officers were dispatched to Glenn's house. He allowed them to go inside and look around, but they didn't find Molly. On March 22nd, Kiara called the police and asked them to conduct a welfare check on her mom. Kiara was worried because she hadn't spoken to Molly since the 9th, and her phone stopped working on the 13th. Kiara explained that she would normally hear from her mom once a week, sometimes even more frequently. She also mentioned that Molly hadn't had any disagreements with her family members. After speaking with Kiara, officers went back to Glenn's house. With his permission, they searched inside, but Molly was nowhere to be found. Glenn told officers that Molly was fine, however, she had been having a falling out with her family and didn't want to contact them. This was a direct contradiction to what Kiara had told the police. With no sign of Molly anywhere, her family filed a missing persons report. For unknown reasons, the police didn't list Molly as a missing person on their website for months. This made the family feel like the police weren't taking Molly's case as seriously as they should. The fact that he can be tied to three different people dead before that just makes me really confused as to why they didn't act more. Because they have his history and they have his file. So why didn't they do more? You would think that with all of that, they would kind of take that a little bit more seriously. And I don't really understand why they didn't. Especially since she was so cemented in that area. She had two jobs. She always went to her two jobs. And she had, you know, her daughter who she frequently talked to. She had her mom who she talked to all the time. It didn't really make a lot of sense to me. To make matters worse, there was no reporting in the media about Molly's disappearance. It was as if the only people who knew she was missing were the police, her family, and her friends. Since the police weren't looking into the case as much as the family wanted, Molly's sister Abby flew to California to find out more herself. When she got there... She teamed up with Sam's mom, Christine, and together they began looking into what happened to Molly. Abby visited both of Molly's jobs and found out that she hadn't been to work since around March 9th. This was very unlike Molly, who was known for being responsible. Abby also went to the apartment she thought Molly had been living in. To her surprise, she discovered that Molly had moved out back in January. Nobody seemed to know why she had left her apartment. The East Bay Times later reported that Molly had been evicted However, the family was never told that information. Through Molly's friends, Abby learned that Molly had gone to live with Glenn Griggs and she had been very scared before she disappeared. After hearing this information, Abby and Christine started looking into Glenn and found out that he had a history of criminal behavior. This realization made her family even more concerned for Molly's safety. While Abby was in town investigating her sister's disappearance, Molly's friend John continued trying to get in touch with Molly. On May 8th, John requested the police to do another welfare check. According to the district attorney's report, this time, when officers went to Glenn's house, he wouldn't allow them inside. Instead, he talked to them through the front of a metal security door. Glenn informed the police that Molly was still living with him, although she wasn't home at the time. He said Molly got a new cell phone number to avoid contact with her family, but when officers asked for the new number, he refused to share it. Glenn also said that Molly had recently purchased a new Toyota Prius. After leaving the house, officers checked into this claim, but they didn't find a Prius registered under Molly's name. Two days later, on May 10th, Molly was officially registered as a missing person on the California Department of Justice Missing Persons website. Still, there were no media reports about Molly. The following day, police were called to Glenn's house for an altercation with a passerby that was unrelated to Molly's disappearance. While there, officers asked about Molly. 
Glenn said she had been at the house the previous night, but had left since. When officers asked for Molly's new number, Glenn said he didn't know it. This was a change from the last visit when Glenn said he wouldn't share the number. At this point, the police were suspicious of Glenn and his possible involvement in Molly's disappearance. On July 3rd, they set up cameras outside of the house. The cameras stayed up throughout the month, but at no point was Molly or her quote-unquote new Prius seen on camera. Now, I want to weigh in here because this is something that I used a lot during my investigations, especially with narcotics. We have what's called pole cams, um, but they can be other things as well. They're in the shapes of those transformers that you see on telephone poles. They can be garbage cans. They can be rocks. And they usually have a very long battery that only has to be changed every couple days. And they can be remotely controlled by, from a van nearby or even through a uh, IP address where you can log on to them remotely from a computer anywhere in the world. And we use these a lot to kind of monitor drug activity to figure out when drugs are being dropped off, when they're being picked up, what's the most uh, busy time to go in there, when should we conduct the search warrant based on activity, how do we increase our element of surprise, all those good things. So in this case, they're deploying it for a missing persons case, something that I never did, but would be very advantageous in a situation like this. And I'm sure they were going to use the lack of Molly sightings to continue to build the case against him when they wrote up their official affidavit saying, hey, listen, this guy is deliberately lying to us about this woman, and we have reason to believe that's because he's involved with her disappearance. But again, a pole cam, a very incredible tool that is still widely used today and uh, in all different types of cases, including a case like this. On July 31st, police went to Glenn's house to ask him about Molly again. This time he told officers that Molly moved to Southern California to take a temporary job at a nursery. He said she traveled back to Sunnyvale once a week and she had been home the previous weekend. According to the district attorney's report, Glenn told officers that, quote, anyone concerned about Molly should know she is doing fine and is very happy. He explained that he and Molly were focused on their new life together and were, quote, very much so in a relationship and had been for the last one and a half to two years. I want to pause here and bring up that the only person who said Molly and Glenn were in a relationship was Glenn. There's no proof that Molly was ever dating him. She didn't tell her family about Glenn, and when she talked to her friends about him, she didn't even use his name. Instead, she referred to him as the guy she was renting a room from or her landlord. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like something a girlfriend would say. So while Glenn was busy lying to the police about Molly's whereabouts, her family was doing everything they could to find Molly. They hired a private investigator, gave DNA samples, and frequently followed up with police to see where the investigation was at. But unfortunately, there was no sign of Molly anywhere. Meanwhile, Glenn's strange behavior continued to escalate. On August 24th, the police received a 911 call from Glenn, who said he wasn't feeling well and needed help. When officers arrived at Glenn's house, they saw that he had been cut on his wrist. According to the district attorney's report, Glenn said he didn't cause the injury to himself. He also told officers he was still in touch with Molly, who continued to work at the plant nursery and sometimes came back to see him. In October, the police got another 911 call from Glenn's house. This time, Glenn said someone had stabbed him. When the police arrived, they saw that Glenn, who seemed very drunk, had cuts on his legs, arms, and throat. However, there were no rips or tears in his jeans to correlate with the cuts. Glenn told officers that three men had attacked him, but he couldn't describe them. Glenn then spoke about Molly, stating that he had already called her about the injuries. But when officers asked for her number, 
he wouldn't give it to them. Later, police looked through Glenn's phone records and found out that he didn't actually call Molly that night. In November, Molly and Abby's mom, Chris, passed away suddenly. When Molly didn't show up at the funeral, her family became even more worried about her well-being. Molly and her mom were very close, so if she could have been at the funeral, she would have been. And you also have to think that Molly would have wanted to make sure Kiara, who was staying with Chris at the time, was okay and taken care of. As the months passed, there was still no sign of Molly, and the police kept investigating her disappearance. But by mid-2014, they were treating the case as a homicide. Then, on June 2nd, an arrest warrant for Glenn Griggs was signed by a judge, charging him with the murder of Molly Frankamont. In addition to the arrest warrant, a search warrant for his residence was also signed. Due to his previous hostile encounters with officers, the police spent the next few days discussing a plan on how best to carry out the warrants. Just after 8 a.m. on June 5th, two detectives went to Glenn's house to serve the warrants. According to the district attorney's report, this did not go well. Glenn threatened the detectives with what looked to be a long rifle. The detectives retreated, and the SWAT team, crisis negotiators, and additional officers were called in. Authorities tried to negotiate with Glenn, but it didn't work. After some time, he came at them with his finger on the trigger of his rifle. Officers opened fire, and he was killed. When police approached Glenn and removed his weapon, they found out that it was a BB gun, not a rifle. An autopsy report later concluded that Glenn had a, quote, toxic amount of methamphetamine in his system. Police searched the home for evidence in relation to Molly's suspected murder. It's unknown if they found anything of importance. They've never released anything publicly. The police also interviewed Glenn's uncle, Robert, a former police officer who owned the home. According to the district attorney's report, when the police asked Robert about Molly, he mentioned that Glenn called her his girlfriend. Robert said that he knew Glenn refused to talk to the police about Molly's whereabouts, but he didn't think Glenn had harmed her. Robert also told officers that he thought Glenn was, quote, a pain in the ass because he was, quote, not a very cooperative guy. He explained that Glenn was specifically uncooperative with police because he was frustrated with them for thinking he was involved in three of his girlfriend's deaths. Robert went on to say that he didn't think Glenn had hurt those women either, claiming, quote, he has this weird thing for picking up girls that are not well. Robert explained to officers that Glenn had one girl, quote, die on him, and another got, quote, kidnapped or something. I really don't have to say much here. The fact that Robert was a former police officer means that he wasn't very good or he has an undying loyalty to, to Glenn because clearly with Glenn's criminal history and these surrounding circumstances around these girls' deaths, um, it wouldn't take a police officer or a detective to figure out that when it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Robert, I don't know if you're still alive or not, and I don't even know where you were a police officer, but all I can say is this. Based on your assessment of Glenn, I really hope your only job when you were a police officer was writing traffic tickets. Hoping to find out more information, the police also shared pictures of Molly with Glenn's neighbors. However, none of them could say for sure whether they had seen her before or not. One neighbor did mention that Glenn frequently had women from the homeless shelter come to his home, and Molly's photo resembled some of those women. 
Now, there's a couple things we can take from this. Obviously, he's focusing on women who have a troubled past and are in difficult circumstances, which gives him this power over them. He can offer them something, a home to live in, alcohol, food, and he knows that he can take advantage of the situation by bartering with them, maybe for sex. We don't know, or at minimum, just their company. So clearly, Glenn knew exactly what he was doing, and what they're saying about the photo here is maybe he had a type. You know, if this guy was responsible for multiple deaths, just like with serial killers, uh, Glenn may have had a specific type and looked for women who had similar characteristics. After conducting all of their searches and all of their interviews, police were no closer to finding Molly Frankamont. On the day after Glenn was shot and killed by police, the media began reporting on Molly's disappearance. Whenever they reached out to ask her family questions, they always wanted to know about how the family felt now that Glenn was dead, not about Molly or her disappearance. This was very upsetting to her family, who felt like the media should be focusing on Molly and the other victims, not the killer. Within a month of Glenn's death, the media was no longer reporting on him, Molly, or the other victims. For the next few years, the district attorney's office investigated the shooting that resulted in Glenn's death. In 2016, the DA's office published a report summarizing what they found during their investigation. After looking at all the evidence, they decided that the shooting was justified. Following the release of the DA's report, there haven't been many updates about Molly or her disappearance. It should be noted that we reached out to authorities for an update on Molly's case, but we didn't receive a reply. Sam told us that it seems like investigators didn't make any progress in Molly's case after Glenn was killed. I think the case ended the day that Griggs was killed. I think that was a complete dead end full stop because that was their one and only suspect. Understandably so. I mean, every single sign points to this guy. We all think it was this guy. They have, the police have our DNA or Abby's DNA. They have any resource we could have possibly given them. They have, and they have had it for 10 years. I don't know if they even consider this an ongoing case or maybe they consider it ongoing just for technical reasons, you know, but there aren't any new leads that we're aware of or anything like that. I mean, this is one of those situations if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. I think we all kind of know what happened, but there's not really much we can do if the person we believe killed her is not alive anymore. Sam also explained what she thinks happened to Molly. I think that Molly was easily manipulated by no fault of her own. She's just a very genuine, kind-hearted person. I think that she got stuck in a situation where she felt unsafe. Most of our family believes that he killed her and he got rid of her and he learned from his previous times of killing. I believe he killed all three women. I believe he killed the two prior. I think that that is not a big stretch to say. However, Molly was different. Molly was not as far as we were aware, and I think we would have been aware. Molly didn't have alcohol issues like the previous two had. She didn't have any substance issues. So if she was found dead from an overdose, that would look really weird. So our belief is that she was killed by him, and he did a better job of hiding it. Fortunately, Sam said that although Molly's body has never been recovered, many family members have found closure. Something that's really important here is that a lot of our family has reached a state of closure. A lot of them are 
pretty sure they know what happened and they they all feel a sense of closure but i'm the main one that feels that little bit of like not closure because it it's real irritating just seeing his name everywhere and not seeing her anywhere that really really bugs me and see that's why this episode is so important to molly's family they are really hoping people will finally get a chance to learn more about molly and who she was as a person as well as the details surrounding her disappearance. I think our whole family would really like for the narrative to not fully be around him and the narrative to be more about, you know, not just Molly, but even the other two victims as well. I mean, three technically, but the the other two women that were killed by this man, we feel they all should be at the forefront, not this man who stood somewhere with a BB gun or something like that and got himself killed. He should not be the focus. It should be the women and the self-destructive path that he created, you know, first starting, I think, with like a five-year-old boy and then these two other women and then my cousin, you know, my cousin still, there's still the chance that we could find what we assume to be her remains or just someone has information that they're not willing to share, most likely his uncle. They might have more info. But I think that focusing on the women and the little boy is where things should be at. Before we get into my perspective, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Molly's sister, Abby. Molly was smart and funny, and she loved so very, very deeply. She worked hard, and she tried hard. And even when she did not succeed, she never just quit. She took a lot of hard knocks in her life, and she always got back up and kept going except apparently this time. And she deserves to be remembered not as a victim, but as a living woman who was a daughter, sister, friend, and more. Abby, I couldn't agree with you more. All right, so let's get into my perspective on this investigation. Although I don't agree with everything that was done by police, it's really hard to say if what they did or didn't do would have changed the outcome in this case. We have a window of March 9th to March 13th. You could, you could make an argument that that was the time that whatever happened to Molly happened to her. And I don't even think that's really much of an argument. That's when it occurred. The real question is, did Glenn hold her against her will for an extended period of time? Was she kidnapped and held somewhere? Or was she killed? If she was imprisoned and there for an extensive period of time, well, then obviously if police would have been more aggressive, they may have made entry into the home and maybe they could have found her. But as we know, they did go into the home shortly after and conduct a well-being check and they didn't find her anywhere. And I'd like to think, I don't know the layout of the home, but I would think that if she was being held somewhere in, a, in some secret room or whatever, unless it was soundproof, if she would have heard other people in the home, she would have screamed, she would have yelled, she would have kicked, she would have did something, and she would have gotten their attention. So for those reasons, I believe that Molly was no longer in the home. Could she have still been alive somewhere else? Possibly. And as I always say, in this particular case, because we don't have Molly's body, uh, I'm never going to say definitively that she's no longer with us. And I'm going to classify this case as missing because that's technically the right term. Um, but based on what we have here with Glenn, um, the it doesn't look very promising. 
And I do think that Glenn was someone who was doing this religiously and he had many victims. And I don't think the deaths of those other women was an accident. If anything, he was overdosing them with alcohol in order to take advantage of them. And because he's an idiot, he was overdoing it and he killed them. And I think he purposely chose women who were down on, you know, on their luck and maybe a little bit older and maybe had some mental issues they were working through because he could take advantage of that situation. He was a control freak, and that's why he had a metal security door on the front of his house. He wanted to be in charge of who left and who came, and I think that's why he had such a difficult time with authorities. He didn't like the fact that they ultimately were in charge over him in some way, shape, or form, and he despised them because of that. As far as if there's anything else that Molly could have done, once she moved into the home, there really wasn't. First off, she didn't know about... Glenn's past. And secondly, she was in a position financially where she didn't want to reach out to home. She didn't want to go back home. She was trying to figure it out on her own. And so she stayed reluctantly. Should she have left? Yeah, of course. Hindsight's 2020, though. She didn't know this was going to happen. And if I'm to guess when this happened, more than likely, it was when she was unsuspecting, possibly even asleep. And unfortunately for Molly's family, I think the only way this case will ever be closed at this point will be if Molly is found dead or alive. And as time passes, finding her alive becomes less and less likely. But I'm, I'm still hoping, as I'm sure her, her family is. And that's where I want to end this perspective, with her family. This is the reason I covered this case. I think we can all agree that is a, with a reasonable degree of certainty, Glenn is responsible for whatever happened to Molly. And it didn't take me telling this story tonight to get you there. Just by reading this on your own, you would have probably came to the same conclusion. But the whole reason I started Detective Perspective was to give light to the people and the families who didn't get it in the first place. And although we can't always change the outcome of what happened, we can decide what the narrative is for these victims, including... Molly Frankamont. And that's what I want you guys to take from this. And I hope that you take some time, if you're listening on audio, to come over to YouTube and look at some of the photos of Molly. She was beautiful. And to remember her that way. A woman who was trying to do her best for herself and for her daughter. And unfortunately, she got involved with the wrong person. And we hear this story way too often. But I know personally, I'm going to leave this case thinking about those photos and remembering Molly's smile, and remembering how happy she was when she held Kiara. And I hope that you will do the same. To Molly's family, specifically Sam, thank you for allowing me to cover this case, and thank you, Abby, for the beautiful quote. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I hope you're able to move on with your life, maybe not with complete closure, but an understanding that now it's not only a responsibility to live for yourself, but also for Molly. I think she would have wanted that for you and for her daughter. All right, just to recap, in case you do have any information that could help, Molly Frankamont was last heard from on March 9th, 2013. At that time, she was 38 years old, 5'3", and 110 pounds. Molly has brown hair, brown eyes, and a tattoo of an Asian bird on her hip. Anyone with information can call the Sunnyvale Police Department of Public Safety at 408 730 7101. 
I want to thank you all for joining me here tonight. If you've made it to the end of the video, please leave a comment down below. And as always, like, comment, subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening on audio, whether it's Apple or Spotify, please make sure you leave a rating. It really helps the channel grow and it gets these cases exposed to more people. I hope everyone stays safe out there. I'll see you soon.